We are about to talk to a local celebrity and fierce fighter for children and families. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and I'm here with Kat and Nicole, and today we have a very special guest in the studio, Judge Lynn Tepper. Welcome. Thank you, retired senior Judge Lynn Tepper. (laughs) Happy to be here. Thank you so much for being here. We have a very important question to ask you. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? I'm very simple, flat white, unsweetened. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you became a judge. Just yesterday, I was speaking to some of the children at Mariposos at the Farmer Self-Help and telling them about how I became a judge. Behind it are things that didn't turn out the way I expected. This was an unexpected route. I mean, how I became an attorney and then eventually a judge. After I had graduated and I interned for a bankruptcy judge, I was a law clerk, the first law clerk ever to the chief bankruptcy judge for the Middle District of Tampa, Alexander Pasquet. So I saw how a judge might do things in terms of making decisions and writing orders, but I wanted to be a trial attorney. I had been a drama dance major in college. (laughs) When I went to law school and I took a trial course, I was like, this is it. And so I went to work for the public defender's office in the Sixth Judicial Circuit and tried 50 cases in the two years and four months that I was there, 50 some cases. And as I was practicing in front of primarily one judge, I could see that how the individuals were treated mattered. And I was dismayed when they were bullied. I was dismayed when they were shamed. And I saw the negative impact that it had on individuals. And candidly, I said, I was 27 years old. <laughs> you know, I'd only been an attorney for less than two and a half years. And I said, I can do better. <laughs> and I ran against a 12-year incumbent in a four-way race, three males and me. I'd only lived in Pasco County for less than two and a half years when I had announced. And so that started me down the path. And there was a primary and I was one of the two finalists. It was me against the incumbent. And then I ended up losing in the uh, general election by 2.25% of the vote. But I went on to open up my own practice, which was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me for a variety of reasons. So then I had a diversity 
of cases, including continuing to represent juveniles and individuals in criminal court, but doing a lot of family law and doing termination of parental rights cases as a court-appointed attorney, things like that. I decided to run again, but not for that seat. I ran for a brand new seat that was created for another county. It was the third county judge seat in Pasco County. I won on the uh, primary against two other experienced attorneys. So I was a county judge. And as a county judge, I also volunteered and was allowed to do, as an acting circuit judge, child support enforcement cases, Department of Revenue cases. And then it was suggested that perhaps I'd like to run for circuit. And I ran, the other judge retired, and I ran unopposed in 1988. And I ran unopposed for my entire 30-year career as a circuit judge. Wow. Well, how um, long had you been practicing when you took the county? When I became a county judge, I was one of the youngest in the state. Now, mind you, when I I ran and lost when I was 27 years old. It was before they mandated that you be an attorney for five years. before you become a judge. By the time I ran and won, it was mandated. And so at that time, I had been practicing for seven plus years. And I was 32 when I took the bench. I was the first woman elected to the Pasco bench. When I first moved to Dade City, everybody said it's such a good old boys town. And, you know, I was married at the time to an attorney who later became a judge and defeated that judge I didn't defeat. Because he was an attorney in Dade City, I was practicing in the public defender's office in Newport Ritchie. That gave me intro, you know, because he would be included in invitations and got to know some of the people in town. Then I was included. My mentor was Judge Dayton. Judge Dayton had been my professor at Stetson and he ran the trial clinic. He was tremendously helpful to me. He lived in the middle of the county in the Land Lakes area and he took me around and introduced me to everybody all over the county. What a difference that made. And he had been a circuit judge. He had been defeated and then he became a professor and, and he was a lifelong friend of mine in his lifetime. But that that made a big difference that he made the intro. The kindness of people who chose to not look on me as, she's from New York. She's a woman. Instead, they were like, let me help you. How can I help you? And made all the difference in the world in the connections that I made. I mean, and I would be taken to the, you know, if you want to call it the good old boys, traditionally yeah. male gatherings and be taken around to say, oh, here, I want you to meet him. And you need to support her. And you need to support her. And you need to support her. A funny story years later, when I was a county judge and I was hearing a case that involved one of the agricultural families, I had to make a ruling and I was announcing all my findings and applying the law. I mean, I did end up ruling in favor of this individual who had been a defendant in a case. He leaned over to his attorney, who's long deceased, and said, she's pretty smart for a girl. <laughs> and, and the attorney said, what have I been telling you? Oh my God. <laughs> but so it wasn't that he was disrespectful. That was just the perception at the time. At the time, this was, you know, this was in the mid 80s uh, that that case took oh my place. Goodness. What was the dependency courtroom like early in your career? Dependency court. And let me talk about as an attorney as well as mm-hmm. as a judge. 
Our laws were different, and so there were fewer mandated appearances in court. I can remember a conflict case that I had, and there was not an obligation, there was not the financial support for the parents whose children had been removed to get services. And the parent that I represented had ended up moving just over the border from the Dade City area over to Polk County. And now that made it even harder. We had no public transportation for a significant period of time. And, and then when we did, and even still, to a degree, you might have to take three buses. And so there was no bus service between counties, you know, unless you were to go to the Greyhound terminal or something. And so they were not getting services there. It's hard to imagine you didn't have to see somebody after disposition for up to a year. You have to have hearings and trials within time periods. That didn't exist. And then to have a judicial review, you know, within 90 days after disposition didn't exist. And you had to have a disposition every, I'm trying to remember if it was every six months or every year. It was devastating. And there was no concurrent planning where wow. we're moving oh. forward to reunification. But if this doesn't go well, I want you to know we may have to shift to termination of parental rights. None of that happened. I was looking at it from the parents' perspective at that time. I couldn't get them the help that they needed, but it certainly didn't seem to be in the best interest of the children either. In essence, the system abandoned children where they were, abandoned parents without a hope, without a way back to heal and to be a safe parent or to resolve it for them, the uh -huh. caregivers, the foster parents or the child. Very unfortunate. And mind you, when I became a judge, those were still the laws initially. I had started doing, um, before we had Unified Family Court officially, which was 2001, I had learned about it by attending an American Bar Association meeting. So I got permission to do it informally. So I would have a family that was in, I was a circuit judge by then, independency court. I might also have had one of the children in delinquency court for breaking his sister's arm. I might also have the parents in court because of domestic violence or family law matters. And then eventually when I shifted divisions, I might have another brother in adult felony court. And then I also had children who didn't go to school, children in need of services. So I might see all members of the family in different divisions, which made it that much plainer to me why we needed to have a unified family mm -hmm. court, why we needed to have more persistent, caring, responsive services. Some of those individuals I have kept in touch with, I'd kept in touch with, or they'd reach back to me 10, 15 20 years later, the system includes all of us, therapists, judges, caregivers. The Guardian Ad Litem program just began out of Pinellas County when I was an assistant public defender. And then it became a state entity. It was dark. It was very hopeless. And then after I'd been on the bench many years, this woman reached out to me who had been one of the many children I just described that there were in all of these branches, all these different uh, divisions. Her son was going to be thrown out of school if he wouldn't keep taking his ADHD meds. And she was very concerned because she didn't like the impact it was having on him. Her husband of that child was very active in Boy Scouts. And so she said, I wanted to talk to you about what's going on with him and, and his school, but also he's working on his Eagle Scout on his merit badges for government. Could we come and you help them? And he brought his friend. And so they would come every month from West Pasco, which is where I'd known them originally, to Dade City after hours. I would help them, teach them about local government, state government. There's guides through the Boy Scouts. I could see what was happening. And he was so over medicated, he wrote so that you could barely read it. And he was exceedingly thin. In time, I connected them with somebody who helped tremendously. And that young man has done very well. And I was able to attend a ceremony where he had done great things for the Boy Scouts and the veterans. Along the way, 
then I got to talk to her. I also brought her to a program where they wanted to also hear from individuals who had suffered trauma had been through the system. So through that, we got to talk and I had no idea because dependency in the day, predispositional studies, what did they tell you? Not much. They didn't tell me when I had her as a child that the very parent that was in court had been in another jurisdiction with them where they had been reported and he'd been sexually molesting them. I didn't know that. I used to require in my delinquency reports, I want to know every call that's been made, whether it's founded or unfounded. And so imagine when it wasn't even required to include such information. So here I am taking care of this family, not knowing that man, who, by the way, I later had mother of these children, was facing criminal charges for trying to murder him because of all he had done to the children. So that grandfather had been molesting her for years, but she didn't reveal this to me, and I didn't learn through the system, that this is what she had faced. And she had a good therapist. At the time, therapy in the late 70s, early 80s wasn't about trauma. At least she had stability. But she'd also, before that, before she ended up with this older woman who was a superb, caring, kind therapist, you know, now we know more. We didn't understand then. Maybe you'd like to consider going to therapy now as an adult um, because you didn't deserve any of those things that happened to you. She said, I had to tell my story so many times to so many therapists, to so many people, that lack of stability. I finally had to just stuff it down and pretend it didn't happen. We now understand the science of adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. We know they lead to the 10 10 leading causes of death. She died in her 40s. Her husband died in his 40s. These were people who, despite the failure of our system, tried very hard to be caring, responsive, loving parents. It was too late to undo what the adversity, the toxic stress Mm -hmm. had done to their systems. That was the ultimate illustration for me, why it's so important to me. This most recent series that we've been doing is former foster youth. Almost everyone that we've talked to that has had these adverse childhood experiences, they all have almost the same health problems young in their life. And every single one of them, you can see how it can be related to stress. And it's unbelievable that these young people are dealing with things that most people don't deal with till they're much older. But when you hear their story and what they've been through, it's like, well, Mm -hmm. yeah. There's a direct correlation every single time. Which is why Nadine Burke Harris, who was a pediatrician who Mm -hmm. learned fairly early on about the impact of adverse childhood experiences and trauma and toxic stress, is now the Surgeon General Mm -hmm. in California. And that's why they have introduced mandating of the right type of intakes for pediatricians to be doing so we can minimize the impact. The mm-hmm. sooner, the better. By the way, brings you to the safe baby court, zero to three. Yes. Because the first thousand days are the most important days. That's when the most synapses are forming in the brain and we can do the most good or we can do the most damage. Mm-hmm. And it's much easier to undo what happens at three years instead of at age 50. 
it's pretty tough. And it's even tough at 15 to begin to undo it. It's mind blowing sometimes when you read about this stuff or you learn about this stuff in a training and then you actually see it in real life. These former foster youth, these kids that have had these horrible things happen to them that you can already see the effects of it on their body. You know, a lot of the times the therapy that they get isn't necessarily like the specialized trauma therapy. The effects are minimal and, you know, they get sick of going through one therapist after another every time they have to change placement and getting to know a new therapist. And a lot of the times I've noticed that kids in foster care, the therapy agencies that are often assigned to them tend to have people that are newer, less experienced. I literally had someone sit in my kitchen one time with one of my foster kids and read off a screen what questions to ask the child. And the child was looking at me and rolling her eyes. That's been my experience with the kids in my home, not having the right experience. And by the time you're a teenager, you don't want to deal with it anymore. Right. You know, floridacourts.org is our website and within it, you go to toolkits and within it, you can go to one that's on early childhood development and trauma. I was part of the group that was helping put the materials in and it's updated constantly from Dr. Vincent Filetti, who was a co-investigator of the ACES study presentation. I got him to come to Florida to give in 2018 with the permission and the funding from the state courts. We also have the Big Ten and number two on the Big Ten is presume trauma. They wouldn't be in the system, likely, if there hadn't been trauma. And even if they hadn't, being in the system is often... It's traumatizing. Yeah. Traumatic. Yeah, even just the adjustment alone of, like, the move and the new people and all the stuff, that's a trauma in itself. Better to be wrong that there is no trauma Mm -hmm. as opposed to let them age out and discover that nobody Mm -hmm. asked the right questions. When did you learn about trauma-informed courtrooms and how did that evolve for you? Another wonderful mentor of mine is Dr. Mimi Graham, who is with FSU, and she helped create the Early Center for Child Development at FSU. At that time, I had already been part of a unified family court project years earlier. And then in 2012, I was doing a lot of pushing and I'd been doing educating since I had been a county judge of other judges in the state of Florida. I was doing some things on visitation, which we now call family time. Dr. Graham was teaching on attachment and how important that was. And so they paired us together at, there would be the dependency conference, but the judges would get together the day before and have some education. So that we want the two of you to teach about visitation. And we had mutual friends. So we bonded right away. We were then asked to go around the state to different jurisdictions and teach about family time and attachment. And that's how I learned about the circle of security and the impact of positive attachment versus negative attachments, things like that. And then around that time, she shared with me what she was learning about the adverse childhood experience. And then we began to teach that together. Together, we went to the Southeast ACEs Conference, which is held biannually in Asheville. And Dr. Robert Anda, the co-investigator of the ACEs study, was one of the plenary speakers. I learned lots from other people there, but we also taught. And then two years later, Dr. Fletty was the opening speaker. We were plenary speakers on that, on trauma-informed approaches. And along the way, would be invited to other jurisdictions. And the National Council of Juvenile Family Court judges, right around the time I was learning about ACEs, was seeking applicants for six sites that would be model courts for Project One. 
One being one judge, one family, no wrong door, equal and coordinated access to justice. And it was all with a trauma-informed approach. And my application was accepted. It was supposed to be for three years. They did it till I retired. They did it for six years. And so they continued to educate me, allowed me to continue to educate at the National Council. And then I would be invited to other jurisdictions to teach. The knowledge was growing. I used to read the law. Now I read science. There is a direct correlation. And if you understand the science and apply it and take the trauma-informed approach in court, then you're not going to have cases on appeal. That's the astounding thing. You know, we talk about the difference between when I first began. Cases went on and on, which also meant that if there was a termination of parental rights and an appeal, the appeals took years until the appellate court became astute and said, wait, we need to fast track dependency cases. And so then they began to fast track them so that you didn't go two years and say, you were wrong. Let's move that child. Along the way, because of a trauma-informed approach and the change in the law requiring concurrent planning and then actually teaching judges to do concurrent planning, talk about it from the get-go. You know, I mean, then, of course, we had the federal act that had changed saying we had to get to permanency and it wasn't always followed. But then you'd have reviews and status reviews faster. I learned through a trauma-informed approach and what I teach judges is you might say you need to do this and you need to do that. But Number one, how do you know they're going to find the funding? How do you know there isn't going to be some glitch and we're going to wait six months to come back? No. And by the way, what about that assessment? So then you learn to time things to come back to court to see, did that assessment? Okay. And now do we have the follow-up? What's the holdup? And for the children as well as the parents. And how is this placement working out? So then by applying the science and the needs to not have stagnant time where people who have no reason to believe anybody cares about them. I mean, that's true. Particularly yeah. children who mm-hmm. said, well, I, I, nobody listened to me before. Why should I say anything now? And parents who as children might have reported sex abuse who was told to shut up and not tell anybody. Yeah. And so if the system is silent, why bother? Nothing's going to change. By applying the trauma-informed approach, gets you back to court sooner. But the key is getting to permanency sooner. We can't have children and adults' lives hanging in limbo. And so... I didn't have trials virtually. I used to try cases endlessly in the early days of being a dependency judge. Mm-hmm. And they would go for days. And it was painful to watch the case manager, who might have been the fourth case manager on the case, <laughs> with a file in front of them. They'd be asked a question and trying to figure out where the heck the answer, the answer was is. in there, as opposed to a trauma-informed approach where the state would be exchanging timelines with the attorney. Everybody was on the same page and stipulations. So we didn't have to go, when was this? When was that? And that would all be accepted in the court. If you were going to have a trial that was going to go on for three days, which, by the way, because the dockets were so jammed because of the poor approaches, you might not finish the trial for three or four months because you didn't have another day on your docket. And instead, you might try a case in a day and you'd be done. But more importantly, you didn't have cases. Instead of trying two or three a month, if I tried two in two years, that was a lot. Because when you see that the people that you're working with actually care about you, that they have an attorney who's educated in trauma, they have therapists that are now participating fully in becoming trauma-informed, and the court is responsive, and even the state child welfare seems to be responsive, and you're saying, okay, what else can I, what, what is it going to take to do this? You tell me. 
and what is it you need? And when you've asked all the questions and then because you're doing a visit once a month, isn't that pathetic? You're mandated. You can have a visit once a month. Wow. And that was what Dr. Graham and I started out teaching. And we actually rewrote a chapter that's still online on family time is finding innovative ways, even if a parent's in prison, in the county jail, even if grandma that they are attached to lives out of state, whatever the attachment was, or their siblings are separated or one's in a delinquency program. And so we taught all these creative ways. And so because you were doing all these things to try to problem solve, but also you had the foster parents coming on board and getting trauma informed and offering in-home education to the grandparents who didn't know they were doing anything wrong. Right. They didn't know what they did to their daughter led to their grandchildren mm-hmm. living with them. And for them to come in and say, I don't even recognize her. I can't believe the transformation. But they started to change, too, because parents could see that their children were beginning to thrive and they felt that it was safe in that foster home or with that relative. They could say, you know what, Judge, I'm not ready to talk about my trauma yet. I say, it's been nine months. I I, I know that. You understand we have to move forward. I'm going to have to set this for termination of parental rights because you keep working. But I'm going to have to set this. So then when it comes down to it, it's not me versus them. It's like, I can see this is going to be better for my child. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. And so then you don't end up with trials and you don't end up with appeals. But if I had any doubt as to how it worked out, hearing from people 10, 20 years later, before I understood that that's what it meant to be trauma informed, I walked out in the common area of the courthouse one day and a woman got my attention. She was sitting with her mother. She said, Judge Tepper, Judge Tepper. She said, I wanted to let you know how things are going. She said, you know, I voluntarily surrendered my daughter and my mother has adopted her. You can see my mother and I get along and my daughter's doing pretty well. By the way, I've gone to college now. Then we stayed in touch and I got her to be a parent that participated, you know, somebody who'd been in the system in some meetings that we had. She went on and she's working in juvenile justice because she wants to help children. And she went on and happily married, had other children Mm -hmm. that did not end up back in the system. Yeah, we really did stop the The cycle. The cycle. And that doesn't happen in every case. I'm not telling you that because the trauma is so deep for some people. The impact of the adversity, now that I know the science, and if you look at some of the really in-depth work that Dr. Folletti did, people that had exposure to, you know, so many ACEs were likely to have 52 sex partners, but we get mad because they're getting pregnant all the time or more likely to have been raped. These go for males and females in terms of the number of partners or the early pregnancies, whether you're the male or the female producing the child or having the child, it goes hand in hand. So you can't just say, okay, all over, fresh start. You know, we're going to do everything so that everybody can handle everything. That's not what happens because of the good fortune I've had of being in a community where people will run into me or seek me out. I hear how they're doing, but I also hear about the difficulties sometimes that they've had, the sorrows. I've had parents come to court who I knew when they were children and now they're a parent. And I'd say, I'm so sorry. They would have been one of eight children and I vividly recall the case of one of eight children, again, because we didn't have all the background information. I didn't mm-hmm. know everything that was going on. Mom was in a violent relationship and we kept taking her children. She said to us, go ahead, I'll just have another one. But she had no doubt, and I never learned what her traumas were, but obviously she'd had adversity. Three of her children that I knew of had ended up back in the system as parents. When the first one had appeared, I said, I'm so sorry. I didn't know then 
what I know now. And she said, that means a lot to hear that judge. Mm -hmm. It didn't change the path she took, but we could help her and she could have a little bit more faith in the system and we could prevent another termination. What we did find is everybody that we had in our system was getting trauma-informed. Then, yes, we might have a mom who has a baby that's born drug exposed. The baby gets removed and the baby may or may not be adopted out. Mom may or may not proceed to be able to get the trauma therapy that she needs. But because of that high frequency of having another child, so so many children, that child born drug-free, never removed, she went on to be a healthy mother and she and her family did not return to the system. But that's because of the trauma-informed approach. That's mm-hmm. not what used to happen no. 30 years ago. So the trauma-informed approach is really what stops that cycle. And as I say, I'm so frustrated. I go, this is my third generation. Enough. But everybody in the system needs to feel that way. I wish everyone did. I teach all over the country or by Zoom, but I also have been doing some efforts to help within the disciplines that will end up as part of the partner of the system. Child welfare, social work, or law students, or pre-law students in clinics and things like that. I helped a friend for a couple of semesters at FSU who has a multidisciplinary program. I have public policy people there. Wait, you mean they might actually make laws someday? All right, we're teaching them about trauma and people that are working on their master's, PhD in social work. That's who we need to teach. Uh And that's what I've been doing. I feel like a lot of the issues that we have in child welfare between all the parties involved are because of all this resistance that people have to each other. And when you give people value and see them for a human being who has no less value than you have, you can remove some of the resistance because really we're all the same and just different things. We've had to different people and we've had different choices. And Interestingly, because there's always a concern when I'm going to teach a group of judges that the judges may be resistant way back when I started teaching. It used to be, well, we're not touchy-feely judges. I just want to call balls and strikes. Even to this day, you know, when I'm speaking with the entity that's asking me to come speak, they're going, well, you know, we do have some judges that'll be resistant. I've started looking at the canons, the judicial canons in each state. And I think if we looked at the ethical obligations within each discipline, we might find something similar. So after I've been teaching for, you know, part of the time frame, I'll stop and go, in case you're wondering why you should do this, here's the canon. A judge shall be patient. A judge shall listen. A judge shall let every individual be heard. And in Indiana, they have to assure that they're getting access to services. And so you go, now do you understand why you need to do this? You know, it's a different approach, but it's true. Often Dr. Graham and I would talk about flipping the switch from adversarial to therapeutic. Ironically, the first day on the bench as a county judge, the St. Pete Times ran an article with pictures of me wagging my finger. (laughs) And I have to tell people, I'm not a finger-wagging judge anymore. I cringe at the thought of that. I know good judges that I've seen videos of, and I hear them shaming people. You know, saying, I told you the last time what was going to happen to you, so what do you expect me to do this time? As opposed to, help me understand, what do you think you need right now? What can I do to help to change this? It is just not in our nature. And dependency is not adversarial. Our goal is the best interest of a child. And the best interest of a child is not to be the prize at the end Uh of whether you win or lose a trial. 
Right. When you remove the resistance and you remove the judgment, then it forces people to face the actual issue at hand instead of complaining about each other, complaining about the caseworker, fighting with the whoever. If you remove all of that and everybody's on the same team, it really does force people to say, what do I have to do? And if you're going to hold people accountable, traditionally, it seems like we only wanted to hold the parents accountable. I'm sorry. Why didn't you fill out that form so we could do the interstate compact so they could go stay with their grandmother in Georgia? And I'm sorry, you didn't feel have the form? Why didn't you bring the form with you? I mean, I'm not saying I want to embarrass case management. No, but it's true. It's true. But if you're not training people or having an expectation Mm -hmm. of, and when will that funding be available? And you did bring bus passes with you today. Okay, good. You need a bus pass? All right. Doing all of that, it doesn't sound like you're being a judge, except if the goal is to be in the best interest of the child, how can we meet the best interests of that child? If we don't meet the best interests of the parent, we may never meet the best interests of this child or the next one they may have. Well, I've talked to so many overwhelmed parents who just feel like there's no hope. When you hold everybody accountable, there's no reason it has to be judgmental or adversarial. But, you know, if you're also holding case management accountable, what's happening here or whatever, then it's got to be hopeful for the parents, too. It seems to make a big difference. And I'm not I was not always like that. But by turning to case management, case management then learned they needed to be prepared to tell me where we were at. (laughs) And because you're then setting cases to coincide with now, when is that appointment expected? Okay, they told you it's going to be 45 days before we get to the report. Okay, let's come in in maybe 50 days. It used to be we were always deferential to the attorneys. What What's going to work in your schedule? As opposed to turning to the parent who probably doesn't have transportation or has a job where if they miss yet again this month, they're going to lose that job or they're not going to be able to pay their utility bill. But to turn to the parent and say, okay, I want to set it in about this time frame. What's going to work for you? They can tell me, well, judge, you know, my boss is really getting upset. I need to wait another two weeks or whatever. Or they might, I say, well, which is okay. We got that day morning or afternoon better for you because people get fined if they Mm -hmm. don't pick up the kids at daycare. And this applies to caregivers as well. And what about the time? Wait, okay. If I set everybody at at 1.30 and I make you get here at 1.30, but I don't get to you till 4.45, then you're missing that last bus. Why did I make them do that? As opposed to just like with youth, it's like youth have a right to be present in court. And I'm afraid that is ignored more than it is honored. But youth have a right to be present in dependency court unless it's not in their best interest. So then why would I want to set those cases where I've youth that actively want to come at nine in the morning when they're going to miss school? When they're going to miss school. Yeah. Yeah. And stigmatized yet again. And that's I changed my delinquency calendar and things like that. That actually leads me into something that I really wanted to talk to you about because my first case ever as a foster parent was in your courtroom. It has set the tone. It is. I'm glad things happened the way they did because I am the foster parent that I am and still fostering because of how things work. To have your first foster placement be in early childhood court and the way that the court comes around those kids and we all work together on a team. Really, it's set me up for a lot of disappointment along the way afterwards where, you know, you go six months without a court hearing and these kids are asking all the time what's going on or there's nobody that's accessible to help with something you're struggling with the kids. It was definitely a world of difference. But one of the things that I have really noticed that was very different from your courtroom to the other courtrooms that I have been on, I've spent a lot of time with a lot of judges. I've had, I think, almost 80 placements at this point. And I've never had a judge quite 
like you for any of my cases. And one of the biggest differences that I've seen is your approach in the courtroom. You're not just addressing the attorneys. You're not even just addressing the parents. Every single person has a voice in your courtroom, right down to the little kids. I will always think of your courtroom as a place where I walked in with my kids and right away their parents would hug them and walk up to the table with them and you would greet the children, you would greet the parents. You always wanted to know how everybody was doing. You always asked the foster parent, you always asked the parents, you you always asked the kids even when they were one and two years old and could barely talk. You wanted to hear from every side of the story and it made people feel valued and it made us all feel like part of a team. So most of the time when I go to court now, I don't even know if they know I'm there. They don't ask if I'm there. They certainly don't want to hear anything. Often don't ask about the kids. It's very different from what I've experienced in other courtrooms. What was it that made you want to have a courtroom like that where everybody had a voice? There's not one incident that I can pinpoint, but even as a county judge, I tried to find out people's story. We have a habit as judges. We want to be consistent. We don't want to appear biased or unfair. And you have some minimum mandatory sentences and DUIs and things like that. And rules of thumb, like, okay, second one DUI is going to do this, third one's going to do this. I began to realize that you can't simply do that without considering that person's experience. So, for instance, a defense attorney brought to my attention as I was considering sentencing somebody to jail time that wasn't necessarily mandatory or the amount mandatory and pointed out that that individual, who, as I remember correctly, had immigrated from Europe somewhere where in their youth they had been in a camp. That was traumatizing for them. And what jail could do to them was very different than the impact jail would have on somebody else. And so that began to raise my consciousness. And also, even when I was running for county judge and I was going around talking to homeowners associations and things like that, I would ask them, I go, tell me something. Do you think it's important for people to gain literacy through the the courts, maybe encourage them to get their education, things like that? What would you say if uh, I encourage people to do community service and gave them credit for working on their high school diploma for community service would that do you would you consider that community service so then when i had mandatory 50 hours of community service i felt comfortable not knowing county court how far did you go in school i mean you might ask a question and you move on Mm -hmm. but now i find out well you know how far did you go in school eighth grade and then instead of moving on then when it comes time for the disposition saying you know what if i were to tell you that if you go work on a reading assistance program or adult ed you know that 50 hours mandatory community service i'm going to give you credit hour for hour um that you work on your education how does that sound so i started out talking to people and i found it was important to know if i'm going to give them the mandatory 10 days in jail if it's their second you know dui within a certain period of time well do you have a job okay which days don't you work when can you turn yourself in so you don't miss work? Well, we'll pick the two days, you know, and we could do it that way. Why did I have to end up making them homeless and destroy their life and their relationships when they could comply with the law if I just ask a few questions? You considered people's humanity exactly. and their lives mm-hmm. and their livelihood the and their impact. feelings. We're supposed to do justice. Justice is blind, but that doesn't mean we should be blind in what we do. 
So that's how I would say it began. We had the Probation or Educational Growth Program, which was quite remarkable. Under Secretary Singleton in the Department of Corrections, and amazing things happened to people. And by the way, this was long before we knew about ACEs. We discovered people were getting angry and walking out of classes and stuff like that. We started having them take anger management classes. We didn't know that was really helping them deal with <laughs> the, the trauma they've been through. But then right. they could begin to focus. Now we understand the frontal lobe that is damaged because high adverse childhood experiences is the part of the brain that allows you to Mm self-regulate, to not get angry, the part of the brain that allows you to focus. And the other thing that I began to understand in why I would start to talk to people and understand is we think that when people are put their head on the desk or they just sit there with their arms over their chest, the head back, they don't care. That's called numb. And the negative impact of adverse childhood experiences, again, on the frontal lobe, this is the part of the brain that helps stop the fight, flight, or freeze. Uh And when you start looking at it that way, and even explaining it to youth, as I would, that freeze, that's the numbness. We think they're not interested. That's because they can't cope. They're overwhelmed. They can't cope. And that doesn't mean they don't care. And a lot of judges and others will say, yeah, I can see you really care or their teachers, but that's not what's going on. And just like the flight, as I began to understand this and actually began to talk to some of my foster youth that used to run a lot, I'd have them in a a caring family placement out of state and we'd get them on the phone and he'd say, Judge, I I didn't mean, I'm sorry, I hit my grandmother and I ran and I would explain a little bit about aces to him because that's what it that's what it is i didn't want to hit them i didn't want i'm so sorry but when they understand it's not that they're broken but there's a cause they can breathe a little easier and like okay Mm-hmm. And then start in, you know, get therapy and things like that. That is trauma mm-hmm. informed and trauma based. When you start to ask those questions, whoever they are in the system, and you see the positive outcomes, you go, hey, this is working pretty good. <laughs> I, need to, I need to do this. I had been shamed long ago by a parent. I shamed. I had called her out on her two boys being in the system. Instead of trying to find the positive, this was a very long time ago. This would have been probably in the early 90s at the latest, she wrote me a letter and she said, you know, Judge, you really embarrassed me. Good for her. Good for her. I wish you hadn't done that to me in the courtroom. And I apologized to her the next time I saw her. You know, bravo to her. We make mistakes, but we expect parents to learn from their mistakes. We expect children to learn from mistakes. How about judges? Mm -hmm. At minimum, we should be held to the same standard. That's right. Of the parents that we're working with. Even more so as Mm -hmm. judges, because we hold the future in our hands, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Do you have any families that stood out to you? There are many that stand out to me at different places of the system. One family that I that I had, I had the older sister and the younger sister, and they were being sold for sex for their mother to get drugs. The oldest one, this was before we were doing as much trauma-informed care, but she ended up eventually being in our very, very early model of the early childhood court. She was making progress, but we didn't have a lot of trauma-informed therapists available at that time. And because she was the oldest and it suffered the longest, it was very, very deep trauma. And then there were other tragedies in her adult life with one of the fathers of her children getting killed in an accident. That grief, which we often overlook as having an impact, just made it harder for her. In time, things dissolved. We thought she was doing very well, but in the end, she didn't. Her younger sister 
who was given permission by another judge to marry early. She had a baby. You know, when you're under 16, you get permission from a county judge to be married. She always stayed in touch with me. We're still in touch. And there have been ups and downs. And it's not unusual for me when somebody reaches out to me to write a letter, like I'll write a letter if it can help her get some housing or it can help her get into some schooling or whatever. I've helped youth who have been convicted as in a crime that might prevent a problem getting into the military. I'll write letters and different things to explain the circumstances. Along the way, I've seen things get very difficult for her. I would set the hospital. When she had the first baby, I was at the first birthday party, you know, and I was very dismayed to see her mother there. And I thought this is not good. And as time went on and on and now 11, 12 years later, she finally told me that she told her mother that she couldn't continue that relationship because it was she didn't use the word toxic, but it wasn't helping her. And I commended her. I said, you know, sometimes it's okay not to like your mother. Mm-hmm. It's okay yeah. to say, no, this isn't good for me or my children. You're not allowed to come over here anymore. That break is actually healthy. And I hope as a therapist, you would agree. Mm-hmm. You have to do that sometimes. Periodically, I've had to give people that message because we didn't get to help that parent, or I should say grandparent in this case, but they're still going to be a negative influence on their grandchildren. I try to make sure that people understand that they are allowed to have boundaries. And I, I think therapists work yeah. with them many times yeah. on that as well. But sometimes it helps hearing it from the judge. And so that's a family that stuck with me. I love to see, I see her children. I love to see that they're doing wonderful things outdoors and doing a little bit of traveling and that she's happy in her job. You know, and she broke the cycle. She it, it, So far, I keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. I keep my fingers crossed. And so that would be pr- one particular one. Not so much the family, but the child. I I had two young men who had been in and out of mental health hospitalizations, the Baker Act. I'm not a fan. I'll say it. I call it the Catch, Diagnose, Medicaid, and Release Program. They need to change the law and mandate that there be a trauma assessment that's done by somebody who knows what they're doing. One young man that I had had come into the system before I knew him. The parental rights had been terminated from with him and his younger sisters and he was adopted. The information that came to me when that family said we don't want him anymore, his adoptive family, and was beating him. Sadly, the information I have didn't tell me what happened to him by his biological family and of course it should have. I just knew that it was terminated and it had to be not good. And he was less than five, I think, and his sisters were two, three, or something like that. He would end up getting Baker acted. And you know how they have so many different diagnoses and they're not accurate. You know, you can't have five different diagnoses and be accurate. Before I became as much of a proponent for having children in court, I, he was around the time I started doing it, and he came to court. I always said he was one of the best advocates I had, even compared to the lawyers. While the case was still open, I could mandate visitation with his sisters, but the sisters weren't being beaten and abused, so the department didn't think they had a reason to bring them into care. There was no abuse or neglect of them, per se. So now the case... In the same home that their brother was in. Yep. And so they never came into the system. But while it was open, I mandated visitation with his sisters. Then as it was closing, the parents were not going to cooperate with him continuing to see his sisters. He said, you promised me. You promised me I would always see my sisters. Broke my heart. I had to break the promise. I had no control. I thought it was going to turn out differently. So after that was closed out, terminated, had nothing to do with that. He was still in a therapeutic 
setting had a very good counselor and he made great strides. As I told him we were going to set another hearing, I said to him, I said, I think we're going to set it on this date. He said, that's my birthday. I said, really? Okay. (laughs) So behind the scenes, guardian ad litem, Wanda Davis would go out and buy a cake and everybody would prepare. And there were cards circulated up and down the halls, the judges and everybody signing birthday cards, cakes. And we didn't set anything else at that time. And we did it in my chambers. He walks in and there's two memorable things about that. He comes in from this therapeutic, it wasn't a group home, but it was a therapeutic setting and it wasn't a lockdown uh, Baker Act. He said, for Mother's Day, they told us we needed to make something for our mothers and I'm thinking, what? What were they thinking? Oh my gosh. And he said, so we were making hot plates and I thought of you, so I brought you this. I still have it and it has a daisy on it. You know, that tells me what's wrong with the system, but it, you know, it warms my heart. And he came in and he saw the balloons in the cake and it was his 11th birthday. He said, you know, this is only the third time I can remember celebrating my birthday. And he turned 11. On his 11th birthday. He stayed in the system a while longer. We had initially tried placing him. There was somebody who had met him at one of those meet and greets who I think was in Pinellas County, but had by the time he was ready to be placed, had moved out west. And we decided to give it a try. He had met them and had some positive experience. So we sent him out to one of the states out west to, to see if this could be an adoptive placement. Initially, it looked like it was going to be a wonderful life. And it was right around the time of Sandy Hook, um, the massacre. And it came back and the individual, who was a professional, who was thinking of adopting him, said he is going to be the next Sandy Hook massacre. It was just inconsistent with anything that I had seen. And then it was his original case manager, and she had kind of kept up with him. She took him in. She'd had the longest relationship with him of anybody. And of course, he's in his mid-20s. He's thriving. He's remarkable. Wow. And he was adopted by her. That's memorable. Yeah, yeah. You know, quite memorable to me. The birthday stories you've told, I've heard several of them. I've worked mm-hmm. with kids in a specific group home, and that's kind of been a consistent thing. I haven't celebrated my birthday, or I've never had a birthday party. As a foster parent, I can't have all the kids in my house, but I can throw birthday parties <laughs> and buy birthday gifts and give them something, right, to make them feel special because they should, because they are. Mm-hmm. I have so many pictures. The um, guardian ad litem, Wanda would set them up in the jury room, which was just off of the courtroom, and then everything would be they wouldn't know it was in there, the balloons and the cake and things. And we'd have headbands and all sorts of stuff and lots of pictures with the kids, whether they were 15, 16 or turning 18. We celebrated them. It makes a difference. Yeah. It is important to celebrate somebody. You know, sometimes parents are struggling and you're, you want to go, you, you want to hit your head because we're not going fast enough. So then you try to go, okay, let me find something positive to say here. I understand that you kept your appointment. How'd that go for you? Okay. And now tell me what will help you go from here. Tell me. So celebrating the small wins and trying to find Find solutions for Mm -hmm. the barriers. And and then one of the other things that I had to change is, and I teach judges, you can't go around saying, do this, do that, do that, do that, do that. You have to have safe and stable home. I need you to uh, be assessed for substance use. And then I need you to finish that recommended treatment. And you know, you need to be taking your meds Oh, and mental health treatment. And you can't miss your visits and you have to pay child support, whatever. Instead of saying, you tell me what you think you need first. I need a place to live, judge. 
okay, let's connect them. And because on project one, we needed to know the resources and connect them with the resources. And I had stakeholder meetings nine out of 12 months out of the year. We were learning what was out there and say, okay, and then what? What do you, is there a reason I can't, if I give you 45 days to do that instead of do it all at once. So then they're not failing from the get-go. Right. Because they're not overwhelmed with all of the things that they have to do. Life is overwhelming. Right. You don't have a place to wash your clothes. Yeah, they're struggling to do the normal life things. And then you put these case plans on them and they're struggling to do that. And then when you try and add more, you talk a lot, Kat, about about the hierarchy of needs. Right. Oh, absolutely. And like, they're still on the bottom and they can't. They, they can't, can't even get process. all these other things. It's just too overwhelming. It's those hierarchy needs. I teach that. It's like he knew about ACEs before we did. Mm-hmm. You know, and he was poo-pooed. <laughs> they, thought he was, they were like, show us the research. They didn't believe mm-hmm. him in the it was late 40s, in 46 or 48. If you don't have a place to sleep, and then you don't have safety, and then you don't have your social needs met, mm-hmm. you're never going to become all that you can become. When Head Start started, it's aligned with that. Like, if these kids are hungry, they cannot learn. If their parents don't have jobs, they can't you know, get them to bed on time and do the things they need to do with them so that the kids can thrive. Nobody's thriving when they don't have their basic needs met. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.